This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today we're doing Chevalier, and I'll kick us off. This week we watch Chevalier, not the 2023 film about the violinist, mind you. This is the 2015 Greek picture about the group of guys on the boat. I am sorry if we deceived you. To be honest, I almost wish we had seen the 2023 film. Sure, that Chevalier looks a bit cringe, but my God, this Chevalier, it really didn't suit me at all. We have a group of six Greek guys on a boat in the Aegean. They play a game. One of the people in the group says one of the other people in the group resembles some object, and the rest of the people in the group have to guess to which person the first person is referring. Joseph is good at the game, but Yorgos is not very good. Yorgos protests. While Joseph is the best at this game, he's not the best in general. Another guy, Christos, suggests they try a different game called Chevalier. Each of the men picks a task for the others to perform, and they rate each other on the performance of the tasks. The winner receives a Chevalier signet ring. Yorgos agrees to play the game, but only if in addition to the six tasks, the men rate each other in general so they can determine who is the best man overall. This is very obviously a ridiculous thing to do. It is not possible to determine who the best man is, because the good cannot be measured with precision in the abstract. It can only be treated in a precise way when it is applied to some particular craft or in some particular situation. These situations will make certain aspects of the good visible, but not others. If we ask who is the best leaper, we can simply measure who jumps the highest or the furthest. That will be very precise, but only by measuring one specific thing. If we ask who is the best athlete, the number of things that must be measured increases substantially, and it becomes completely unclear how to weigh the different things we measure. If we ask who is the best in general, the number of things one can measure is infinite, and each individual measurement conceals far more than it reveals. This is why when we talk about the good as an abstraction, or God for that matter, it does no good at all to try to offer a concrete, precise definition. This is why in theology an important emphasis is often placed on the apophatic character of God, the degree to which God is unknowable. The concept of God cannot be reduced to mere words, and when we reduce it to mere words in order to say something about it, we necessarily distort the concept and exclude elements of it to render it sayable. This is why if you are asked to say what the good is or what God is, you can only lose by answering. These concepts can only be understood in partial fleeting ways, as applied to specific situations, and once the context changes, you must start all over again. This is why the philosopher is a lover of wisdom, is in a relationship with truth. It cannot be grabbed and held onto and put on a shelf, or in this case, on your pinky finger. As you might expect, the games the men play are not at all indicative of who is the best in general. There are no such games that would be indicative. The qualities that make a game work, fairness, transparent, precise rules, all of this is much too stylized, too didactic. It doesn't help that the men are all on a boat, removed from their families, from most of the relationships in their lives that matter. We never get any sense in this film whether they are good to their spouses or their children. We hardly even see them work. I don't think the film is particularly interested in them as people embedded in roles in a context. Instead, what we do get are silly games. 
They skip stones. They measure their genitals. They test each other's blood. They observe one another in minute detail and write down every demerit, no matter how trivial. As it goes on, the competition brings out their worst qualities. They become increasingly fixated on status. They worry about whether they'll win. They do grand, stupid things to try to win each other over. But none of it leads anywhere particularly interesting. It took me half the film to start to remember the characters' names or to tell them apart. They make superficial comparisons and come to know each other only in the most superficial senses. Now I know what you're thinking. This, Benjamin, is precisely the point. This film is depicting the boorish modern man. Unsophisticated, hyper-competitive, and vainglorious. This is what men are like today. And shouldn't we be distraught? Shouldn't we blame toxic masculinity? Shouldn't we blame the Industrial Revolution and its consequences? Shouldn't they go to therapy or learn to breathe air? The progressive and the conservative responses are two sides of the same coin. I hate this kind of situation where I'm asked to slander myself and my friends by pretending this kind of film has something profound to say about masculinity or modernity. Of course, if I declaim the film, then I'm the sort of man who denies what everyone apparently already knows about what modern men are like. If it's all so obvious, then what need have we for a film like this? The good in general can't be measured, and lots of men know it. We don't play competitive games to figure out who is the best in general. We play competitive games because they're fun. The person who doesn't understand that games are to be played for their own sake who gets all hot and bothered about winners and losers and who's higher and lower, that person is adult. And we have better things to do than make films about adults. The point of life is to do valuable things as well as you can do them. To be excellent where and when you can. It is not to make invidious comparisons, and people with phalluses understand that just as well as anyone. Anyway, that's what I think. (laughs) Let's hear what Helen thinks. Yeah, I, I did struggle, I must confess, I struggled like you, Benjamin. And the funny thing is, is that often, because um, this narrative, I, I struggled on a story front to, to kind of engage in this, uh, to work out what was going on and who was what and whatever, and to keep that kind of libidinal investment for the whole film. But interestingly, like often when um, stories are really successful, they're orientated around like a structure and a game is like a really good example. So you know, for instance, the classic detective story or, or an Agatha Christie kind of story, you have this sort of setup of a almost like a game working out what's going on. But the funny thing is, is this game, it didn't really offer the structure um, and the terrain of something understandable and something like resulting in, 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 a, in, a, in, a, in a, in a, like an actualization or realization. But maybe this leads us to some kind of philosophical point <laughs> because, you know, many people have said that one of the issues with society today is that there is this inability to play. And the thing is, in order to play a game, you have to have like rules and structures. Like you look at a board game, the, the, like the whole board itself is a structure. If you have a, a game of football, you have a terrain and you have a referee and you have a whistle telling you off. And, you know, you kind of your usual sort of human rights are suspended because you can like, like be like a school child be shouted at. and all this kind of stuff. But this actually creates the fun. You know, you have to the entree of the borders allow you to jouir, to like have fun. So it's interesting that like this kind of game it was like really hard to work out what the point of the game was. And so it was really hard to invest as a viewer in the game. But maybe this actually leads us to say something about society 
and the fact that we can't really enjoy and we can't really have fun and we can't really play games. But there is a sort of toxic competitiveness that's all pervasive and like a com competitiveness outside, stripped of the sort of um, uh, fun uh, through uh, like the terrain of a game. It's just like toxic kind of horrible um exhausting disorientating and maybe this film is a bit like society itself i thought where it was really strong it had like some really strong visual metaphors so it this is a group of um i think kind of relatively wealthy men who are on a fishing trip and they're they're going back to athens so they're, they're, this is a greek film and they're kind of going on this journey they're at sea in a sense you know they're kind of at a loss as to where they stand you know as benjamin often says we're, we're in a society where we have no roles so we can't really we don't know where we are in relation to the other and we can't really measure up. So in this sort of boat, it's, it, it is a luxury boat and they have staff working for them, but it's very sort of stripped down that the film itself is very grey and kind of nauseatingly sombre. And um, the boat, you know, maybe there's a sort of at sea quality and the sort of the very stripped down nature of the boat makes you think of a kind of boring dystopia. And the fact that they're on a boat and the society of this film is just the people on the boat. There's no outside of the game. So maybe this leads us to think about, you know, what this says about society at large. It's interesting because I think in some ways, I don't know, obviously I don't know the conscious motivations of the director, but because it's all masculine and there's all these sort of imagery of men pumping iron and kind of being very competitive, that this could be read in a sort of... Um, anti-machismo kind of way but I actually think there's something much more universal to take out of it and I didn't actually read it as a kind of like feminist film or anti-masculine film even though there is this really strong visual metaphor of a literal dick measuring contest during it um, but the interesting thing is um, you know as I said th this is kind of maybe a, there's a universalist metaphor here and it's really about everything and I think the thing is this this competitiveness without the pleasure of a game, without the containedness of a game, and without channeling the energies of competition which exist for the good and for fun in the terrain of a game. And, you know, the fact that we can't have a joke anymore, everything, every time you make a joke at somebody, especially online, where we have a sort of, it's more of an anarchic terrain-less environment, everything gets taken seriously. There's no, as I say, there's, there's no fun in the game anymore. But I think this is really to do with how things become more and more and more toxically competitive when society becomes so rel relative and there's no roles, you know, all that is solid has melted into air. And further to this, you know, we're more and more and more alienated through social media. And I talked about this recently, like not very well in a talk, but like how social media, the more we engage in social media, the less we are engaged with um, a person who appears to be a divided subject because we're, we're uh, mediated through screens and we're mediated through um, spending so much time on a neoliberal capitalist platform where we sell ourselves as a product. The screen itself makes us relate to um, the other like the child in the mirror phase, the, 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 you know, in the cans mirror phase, the person on screen appears more um, 
whole and complete than the person actually is in terms of their divided subjectivity. So when you're a child and you're going through the mirror phase, you're like a jumble of feelings and a contradictory being and you don't really have a sense of yourself. Then you look at yourself in the mirror and, you know, hopefully your parent points to you and says, look, look, that's you. Look, at you look so big and you're so strong and you look more together than you actually are. So when we relate to people so much through screens and not in sort of real life, there's this added dimension that the other is uncastrated and undivided. And then also because of the history of screen media, we think of like, um, people on screen are sort of chosen and there's some discernment there and these are sort of gods and goddesses of the, the, the Hollywood golden age potentially it's a little bit of like a flavor of that and then further to that we have the fact that we're all um, mediated by a capitalist platform which um, or the logic of which is to sell products and to have us sell ourselves as a product like we are each the product of the other to kind of keep going and to, to find out more about so all of these lead to us feeling more alienated because we as conscious divided subjects experience the nature of being human which is to be divided but everybody around us appears to be more you know more solid than they are and this is also because you know on social media we're encouraged to put our best foot forward and even if we don't even if we lean into the other side of it and try to portray our sort of you know woe is me you know quote unquote lack this also becomes commoditized because of the nature of the platform and it becomes a sort of like a contingent loss rather than a lack and you're ill therefore you have some kind of victim merit or you're closer to the essence of being and so therefore you have some moral superiority or you have some closeness to the truth of you know matter and reality that you can sell to something else even if you think you're not doing it this is how it comes across to other people because of the capitalist logic of social media so the more and more and more we get um, alienated the more and the, the fewer roles, as we've talked about so many times, um, capitalism erodes um, more kind of structured roles um, within society and sells off solid to um, to things that you know we have to compete for. We end up not knowing where we are, and it encourages a more competitive ma- mindset because at least when you act in a competitive way, you can kind of see where you are in relation to the other. Because when the other is undivided, as they appear in social media. There is no immediate discernment just by them being human, because in order for them to discern, they have to be thinking subjects and subjects that are able to sort of express a continu- uh, express the ability to, to um, judge. And when um, a subject is not divided, they are actually not human, not able to think, not able to speak and not able to judge. They become something more or less than human. So this feedback loop is more and more toxic. So we don't know where we are. And the only thing that's left is sort of this hyper competitive, where do I stack up? And I think that, you know, this toxic competitiveness without the terrain of a game bordered is is kind of, you know, um, expressed in 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 the film and you know and further to that there is this kind of way and lots of people have talked about this how capitalism uses games that appear to be games uh, but are actually sort of much more toxic and serious than that to control us to surveil us and to get us more and more invested in capitalism so you know you have the, the likes of um Pokemon Go, which seems like just a bit of fun, but this is actually something that where you you know you get your your data where you are in the world is sold on to sort of corporations, and you're sort of directed and brought into locations to have yourself spend more money. So you know there's there's a sort of a game that is um, uh, taken from the fun of it, taken from the kind of um, pointless play of it, and then further to that, um, because we don't have uh, because everything has been sort of weaponized through the market. We don't know where we are and we end up leaning into competition without the fun of just um, uh, 
a game or the terrain of a you know of a field or just you know just for just for the love of it and we have to sort of measure up and um we feel more and more insecure in ourselves and we act in a sort of more competitive and more um jealous and more a sort of alienated way all right let's hear what nina thinks so this was my pick um it's a film i saw at the time and i think we have to note that this was during the period of probably the height of the discussion around toxic masculinity or it was around that time um maybe a bit before me too but it was really during that whole kind of man bashing thing which i tried to analyze in my book to some extent and obviously argue against um benjamin's reaction to the film I have to say, maps on exactly to my male partner's reaction <laughs> to the film when I showed it to him uh, last night or the night before. Um, almost, uh, you know, precisely, actually, which is interesting. I accept that this is a very irritating film and it's probably particularly irritating for men it, it, and precisely in the way that it creates this double bind, as Benjamin notes, in insofar as any critique of it could be just wrapped into a sort of psychoanalytic reading of, I don't know, recognition and denial or, or something like this. Um, I do think this is a very, very cynical film. It's a film directed by a woman called Athena Sangari, who's actually quite an interesting filmmaker. She's a trained philosopher. Um, it's not pleasant, I agree. The men depicted on the boat are mediocre at best. They are kind of middle class, but, you know, I think the indifferent quality of their being is, is again, I would say part of the point that they're sort of indistinguishable um, in many ways. And then I think this unboundedness of the nature of this infinite game, and Helen described the game very well, and the, the absence of roles, the absence of connection to the outside world. And bear in mind that they, they choose to stay on the boat even after they've docked in Athens. So this is important. Um, part of the film, I think, because what it's trying to to say is that there is a kind of insane commitment to this kind of status game, which goes far above and beyond any realistic um, horizon of possibility. And that th this is a kind of temptation, an empiricist temptation, like it's a kind of empiricist approach to the world, you know, the idea that you can measure everything um, whether it be the way somebody sleeps or their ringtone, the quality of their ringtone, their, uh, yes, penis size, you know, one of the scenes. Um, or, the, you know, there is, a, there is a kind of Francis Bacon-esque sort of map of mapping idea that you can literally quantify everything. And many writers like René Guénon and others have, and many crit critics of modernity have, of course, recognize and attack precisely this desire to quantify and to measure and to reduce everything to use would, would be the utilitarian perspective perhaps um, or to a kind of scientific but really scientific worldview in which there are no higher values and no other forms so you know Benjamin also talked about this and I think the the emphasis on games in Helen and the emphasis on something else, the good in itself or the apophatic um, position vis-a-vis -vis God or the good um, is precisely what's being closed off here in this bizarre universe, obviously, on a boat of really, you know, expensive but mediocre 
set up and all the men are sort of probably middle class. One of them's a doctor. One of them's a lawyer. Um, so they're kind of professional class men in their perhaps 30s, 40s, maybe 50s. Um, and, I, you know, like I say, I think it is a film that is very, very cynical. I think I think it's unfair. I think it's unfair to men, but I think it's also a kind of closed experiment um, at times that comes across almost like a, a play or like a sort of improv, theatre improv um, to some degree. I think one of the things that's depicted, apart from the pettiness and the quantitative aspect and the status games, um, is the hypocrisy. So, for example, the doctor uh, secretly smokes, very obvious kind of hypocrisy, the uh, guy who's very into fitness has very high cholesterol. Something's going on there. The guy who thinks he's really sexy is the one who can't get an erection and so on and so forth. So there's this kind of very blunt, I suppose, depiction of uh, the way in which pettiness and hypocrisy seem to go uh, hand in hand. There is one character, though, that I would like to sort of speak up for. And this is the brother of one of the men on the boat who is sort of physically, you'd have to say, kind of like a beta man, like he looks kind of nerdy. His only female point of contact with the outside world is his mother, who he um, speaks to or is going to speak to at some point on the phone. He ultimately, I think, is the character that you end up sympathising with, precisely in the same way as you do in The Idiots by Lars von Trier. And I think there's something kind of quite von Trierish about this film, um, particularly the boss of it all, which is von Trier's great comedy, unusually, um, about the workplace and, and power. And But it's really The Idiots that is the key reference here, I think, because in The Idiots, the question of authenticity and of who can actually carry on or be an idiot outside of the closed world of it, where it's acceptable or passable so when the men go back to their normal lives, they can't actually do it. And the only person who can actually be an idiot is a woman, a working class woman who's sort of running away from an abusive relationship. And she's the only really authentic subject. And I think the brother guy, the nerdy guy, is in many ways the only authentic subject as depicted in the film. He's the one who is not afraid to be silly. At some point, he does a dance and uh, lip syncs to a... Um, a uh, kind of like tacky pop song, and he also, despite his squeamishness, steps up and cuts himself um, in a sort of blood ritual <laughs> that another uh, one of the men proposes, and he's the only one who does that in the sense that he um, rises to the the challenge, albeit in a sort of absurdist and comic way, because he he doesn't cut his hand, but he cuts his bum uh, in order to get blood, and it, it's it's sort of very silly. Uh, slapstick um, scenario. So I I think that this film, I I was considering talking about this film in my book about masculinity, but I decided not to in the end. But it was something that I came across precisely when I was um, thinking about this question, especially around the depictions of toxic masculinity. And I, I think this is a, a cynical and unpleasant and unfair depiction of men. In fact, but the, the the theme I do want to emphasize, you know, where we've talked about about games and we've talked about the roles is really this idea of competitiveness, because one thing I'm really obsessed with 
um, is whether there is a difference between male competitiveness and female competitiveness. And I think that there is. I think when we talk about intrasexual competition, i.e. competition between the sexes, right? So women competing with other women, men competing with other men. There are clearly differences in how that plays out. So we know, uh, for example, that women tend to uh, engage rather than in physical competition or fighting, they engage in reputation damage. So this is why calling another woman a slut, for example, is really not a very nice thing to do. Or, or you know, defaming another woman, you know, gossiping um, is one of the ways in which female intersexual competition plays out. And there's a lot of, let's say, perhaps jealousy, envy and competition around appearance and around looks. And this is one of the great things about growing older, getting older, is that that stuff makes absolutely... No sense anymore. It's absolutely wonderful. I, I, I strongly encourage hanging on until you are in your mid-40s and you no longer care <laughs> about competing because uh, perhaps you have a man, perhaps you don't need a man, perhaps you you know are not interested or whatever. It just goes away. And you, I've talked about this before. You start to care about younger women. You, you don't regard them as competitors in any sense whatsoever. They're simply young women who often need protection and might need your friendship and support. Um, so I'm quite interested in, in female intersexual competition, but I'm also interested in male intersexual competition. And just to be typically provocative and controversial, why not? When, when it comes to transgenderism, it's very obvious that there is a kind of strand of men or, or a particular kind of man that transitions or pretends to be a woman who is extremely competitive in a, what we would regard as a typically masculine sense. So someone like Caitlyn Jenner, who is literally, uh, as Bruce Jenner, the, you know this kind of uh, epic male sportsman who is really the pinnacle of, of competition, right, in his youth as a, as a man, um, who then transitions to be, or, you know, claims to be Caitlyn Jenner, uh, partly on the basis, as, as he himself admits, to compete with the Kardashians and to compete with the women in his life, all of whom are sort of successful according to the metrics of today, which is what money, celebrity, uh, your photograph being on magazines or whatever. You know, this this idea that um, status comes through that kind of domination of the media um, and of your selling your sort of self. And so he thinks, okay, I'm going <laughs> to compete with them. You know, that this is a kind of way of ratcheting up the competition. Um, and I think we can see this in other cases of men claiming to be women. Uh, not all men for this tra transition for this reason, but some men, particularly the older men in their 50s and so on, are often come from extremely typically masculine roles, like in the army or the navy, or they're very physically fit, or they're very um, actually... Uh, you know, pilots or whatever, like roles that we would associate with masculinity. And I have to wonder whether there is a an idea there or a tendency or a force that's somehow coming about insofar as the more women are perceived to be successful or to have status, or some women are, that it becomes almost like a rivalry between men and women. And some men think, I can be a better woman than women. Um. And I think this would make sense of the broader point, which I always go on about just to finish, which is that we are more and more like brother and sister, like the whole of society is not structured in terms of a hierarchy or an order or verticality, either sex wise or age wise or anything else. 
but rather as a horizontal plane in which we are men and women are like brother and sister forced to compete for jobs for recognition for sex and so on uh, and in that sense there are no boundaries <laughs> between what you can and can't use in order to get those things insofar as we participate in the open-ended game which is what Helen was talking about um and I think this film is an attempt to talk about the open-ended game and the horror and the banality actually and the pettiness of it and the status game where we don't know the rules you know as both of you have said um, and in that sense I think it's an interesting if albeit cynical unpleasant and overall slight uh, contribution to the discussion yeah I think it's interesting you know we were saying well a about how quickly things have changed in terms of the culture and what something that comes out in 2014 and 2015 signifies at the time mm -hmm. versus how it can be read later um, but it is interesting, this kind of dick measuring contest, quote unquote, versus, which is obviously like a very literal thing. But, you know, it, because that just brings to mind this idea. You hear it often, you know, like that the male has the phallus or whatever, and therefore this absolves women in some way. And really what the psychoanalysts are talking about there is sexuation and not actual subjectivity. So, of course, women are completely capable of like, you know, um, aspiring to to um, be, you know, supreme as well. Um, but yeah, but then there's obviously, you know, cultural and maybe biological reasons why um, things take a different kind of uh, colour, you know, in, in a material sense. But of course, like, we don't really, you know, everything that marked a society that was once, quote unquote, a patriarchy, it might be precisely why um, the rules have gone <laughs> and things become more relative and in this more um, agendered and therefore consequently obsessively gendered society, people become more and more and more at a loss. Well, I, I know some men who are gossipy and who like to pick on each other with language. We saw a little bit of that in this film where people make snide comments about other people. Who do you think is winning? Who do you think is ahead uh, when those people aren't present? So I think some of the stuff that we think of as feminine coded competition, we certainly see men doing that. Conversely, we have women who participate in masculine-coded forms of physical competition, who kick box and uh, play tennis, and you know, thinking of, say, Serena Williams. We have, uh, we have people who do that. I'm not convinced that there is a sharp difference in competition yeah, in, in the way men and women compete. Yeah. I would take on this idea that, in general, there is a kind of of sibling kind of behavior that's going on in that in general people are not sure of where they're located in some kind of hierarchy that maybe used to exist. Uh, and so therefore there are more horizontal comparisons that are being made in general, but I don't know to what degree that's sexed. I think that is more of a consequence of a breakup of norms in general, which of course affects dating, affects uh, sexual relationships, but also just affects everything. Mm -hmm. I know, I think that's absolutely right. Anecdotally, the most, uh, bitchy, the bitchiest place I've ever worked was 95% males. <laughs> 
Yeah, let, was, let me... Go on, also, let me... it was an environment where there was, like, it was a very old institution, but there was, like, no sense of, like... It was totally, it was like, a, it was like an institution that it was internally anarchic. And this created so much bitchiness because nobody knew where they were stood and what everyone else was doing and where they stacked up against other people. So, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Let, let me, let me clarify something a little bit. Um, I don't disagree, uh, for example, with what Helen says about the fact that everything's sort of become de-sexed and therefore resexed, so that sexuation itself becomes this kind of um, chaos and, and nor with Benjamin in the sense that these are, character traits or tendencies or forms of behavior or attitude that are transitive to men and women. You know, I I agree uh, with that. I think one observation that people have made about the internet is that the internet is actually a rather feminine space insofar as precisely it's mediated and precisely the forms of unpleasantness that people engage in are often um, reputation damage and sort of bitchiness and people slagging other people off um, as if behind someone else's back. And of course, it's a very bizarre world where you could potentially search your name and find people talking about you. Uh, this is a, a new development. <laughs> if you think about, I don't know, a town square or something or private conversation that people might have in their houses where they're saying what they really think about someone. But it's not like the, the person that they're discussing can have access to that. Right. So you have a strange situation of this, you know, acephalic Stasi, but it's also this kind of um, headless uh, uh, town square in a, in all of its negative senses. Right. So it's not just the place where people are p- putting forward ideas and, you know, this great sort of banquet of possible thoughts or dialogue or, you know, discussion. It's also the flip side of sociality and language, which is gossip um, and character assassination and just bitching and and all of these things. So I agree that it's not um, so tied to sex. I suppose what I I should have been clear about is let's, let's think about it more on a kind of spectrum. And I, and I think that men, of, of course, are, uh, of course, not only can be gossipy and bitchy, but often are. Uh, I mean, there's a certain category of gay men who are often, leave, often extremely camp and engage in really quite... Uh, sometimes funny, sometimes not very funny forms of character assassination. And there's a mode of being in the world, which is quite camp, which is also very uh, bitchy. Um, But let's say, given that men are physically stronger than women, there's a form of, there's a realm of competitiveness. I realise that Benjamin obviously already mentioned female sports, which by the way, are under attack (laughs) from men who want to compete with women. Um, you know, because I don't know, they're not doing very well in the male category. And they think that by saying they're a woman, they can compete in cycling and weightlifting and all of these other things, which you've seen in the last few years. Um, And you have to ask yourself, what on earth is going on there? There's been various forms of pushback by various sporting agencies, but it's very uneven um, what's going on there. You know, some places, anyway, we know about that. Um, so we have to ask ourselves what's going on when men want to compete with women, especially because the female category in sports is relatively historically recent. It was only not very long ago where women weren't allowed to, like, for example, compete in marathons uh, and so on. So that's an odd one. Um, but let's say because women don't tend to engage in physical forms of competition, or physical, let's not say competition, physical, they do at the level of their looks, but they don't at the level of like fist fights. 
very often. I'm not saying women don't physically fight. They do sometimes. Uh, it's a rather low status thing, <laughs> though, we might say. When we think about women fighting each other, we might associate it with, I don't know, drunken working class behavior or something like this. Um, but um, I think the general tendency of social media and online life is is towards a feminized way of doing things, of speaking um, and behaving. And that would include what we might call toxic femininity, which would be uh, the logical opposition to what's depicted in this film that we're discussing. Right. So I'm interested also in what toxic femininity would look like. I have described it elsewhere, apart from the gossiping and, and reputation damage it would be something like a sacrificing truth on the altar of agreeability is something that I wrote. That that women, because they're trained or they're so used to being social mediators and diplomatic and not wanting things to become difficult, they often find themselves in, in positions where they're sort of just being agreeable and trying to smooth things over, even where that isn't really the right thing to do. You know, and I think we see also this kind of gross hijacking of women's natural compassion in the form of being manipulated to feel sorry for groups that don't actually need women to feel sorry for them. Uh, and women should be caring more about their immediate family and friends. But we have this kind of abstract, uh, utopian, idealistic form of empathy for the other, which is being kind of horribly, horribly used against us, I think. Um, yeah. <laughs> It's interesting what you say just in terms of like uh, psych like part of psychoanalysis. So part of the aim, quote unquote, of psychoanalysis is to neuroticize or hystericize. So to get people to acknowledge the sense of castration, the fact, you know, this sort of is very basic, but this idea that, you know, that the, the male child has the visual phallus and the female child doesn't. So there's sort of like a greater subjective sense of, of castration. But Maybe as I was saying, you know, if you want to talk in sort of male or female terms, I mean, I think that whilst I, I agree with that to a certain extent, obviously it's symbolic and, and actually many things can become like psychological fallacies, really. And it's not just having a penis, you know. Um, but anyway, the the fact is, so psychoanalysis, there's a sort of, a, and by the way, I have a, one of the real problems I have with um some psychoanalytic theory and where I think it can be really weaponized for neoliberal ideology instead of it being a universalist and radical and emancipatory um, philosophy is this idea of um, essential differences. And this leads people in a more utopian sense to label certain categories of person as more like an emancipatory subject than the other category of person, even though I think what's more important is the subjectivity as such, be, nature of subject, universal nature of subjectivity as such beyond sexuation. But anyway, the point being is there's always this sort of like fe females, because they tend to be more hysteric, are more likely to are the radical emancipatory subject because, you know, the aim of psychoanalysis is to hystericize. And when you hystericize, you less, you know, and this, this is very much kind of mis misunderstanding um, the market system from sort of like a, a retro perspective, because it's not really like this today, because um, the point being is often p people sort of wonder and sort of like a lot of psychoanalytic theorists sort of like question themselves whether all of this exposure of castration doesn't just make people more anxious. 
Um, and therefore, as you know, maybe as I said in the earlier, in my a little bit at the beginning, is this how psych, how social media makes us anxious, and that anxiety combined with you know partly through lack of roles in society because of the, the way that the market system destroys everything solid, and partly because of a confrontation with another who appears uncastrated, therefore we feel more castrated. How this leads us to feel more unstable. So, you, it, you know, it's not like that, that. There is a philosophical insight, I think, in psycho, psychoanalysis that is universal and is um, allows us to have, um, to stand outside our own subjectivity and to this might allow us to disinvest from certain toxic elements of, you know, the ideology of promise and stuff that marks capitalism. But there is this idea that, Whilst that, that maybe it is quite idealistic to say that a certain category of person is more of an emancipatory subject because of, quote unquote, being more hystericized and therefore experiencing their castration. Because you can still, ex you know, whether you experience your castration or not, like we're human divided subjects. So you're always repressing the truth of it. So you're repressing the truth that other people are just as castrated as you. You know, this is why I, I'm always on the side of like, unconsciousness raising rather than consciousness raising because the conscious can just be a way to repress an unconscious truth even though it materially looks like what was imagined to be emancipatory at a certain point but i guess what i'm saying is that hystericization might lead actually to greater <laughs> anxiety and that anxiety sometimes combined with poor material conditions and you know wider societal issues can lead to you know, more more of this competitive behavior. So, yeah. Being hysterical certainly can't be the emancipatory subjectivity, if only because soldiers are not typically hysterical, and you can only stage a successful revolution if you're a soldier or someone a soldier, a soldier sympathizes or identifies with, because revolutions are ultimately won by soldiers. Which this is the thing everybody forgotten. gets away from when they it's start talking forgotten. about revolutionary yeah, subjects. Absolutely. The only kind of revolutionary subject is the subject that the soldier is willing to not shoot or to shoot someone else for on, on behalf of. That's the only revolutionary subject. Everything else is, is just talking and gobbledygook. And one of the things that uh, you know, kind of... I, I'm... The, the tendency to talk about it in terms of male and female is, I think, to some degree, obscuring the political economy of what's happening. Uh, you know, the, the Internet as a space is, a, is an economic space. There are tech companies that build these spaces, structure them and create certain incentives in the way that they build and structure them. Uh, those companies are trying to get us to say things on the internet so that they can have data or they can have something that can attract eyeballs, attract advertiser dollars. Uh, that's what I think really drives the internet. Now, it has certain consequences in terms of it leads to gossip and it leads to this kind of competitive negative discourse and all of that. And we can say, well, that discourse is feminine coded or that discourse reminds us of the way in which women are typically stereotyped. But I think we can kind of get off on a siding if we start talking about is this a uh, femininization of the discourse or is this a female thing? Mm -hmm. now, there's a, a term I've seen going around. I'm sure Nina's run across it. Uh, the longhouse in the right wing space is the longhouse, this, this term. Uh, and oftentimes when it's brought up, it's brought up in a context of, of there being a kind of more feminine way in which 
uh, bureaucracies are operating. But I, I like, you know, what I like about the term is that it refers to a physical space, a material space, which structures interaction. And the Internet is, at the end of the day, uh, a material space that structures interaction and encourages certain forms of behavior. And I think when we start talking about is this a female uh, or feminine discussion or a feminine mode of behavior, uh, or is it a male thing? Is it male competitiveness that is the problem? Uh, we're kind of getting away from the specific discrete tech companies that increasingly Absolutely. control the internet, the governments that uh, regulate those companies or don't regulate them, but threaten implicitly to regulate them unless they regulate themselves. Uh, and the way in which all of that is gradually eliminating space for many forms of, of human expression that all people would like to engage in on the internet. I mean, people post memes all the time about how much more fun the internet was 10 or 15 years ago before it was structured in this way. And I don't think it's that we all became really feminine or masculine in the last 10 or 15 years. I think what's happened is that the internet's been taken over by a handful of companies that control almost every place you can go on it now. And it's, it's being domesticated and turned into a sanitized, capitalized upon uh, playpen that is no fun for anybody, really. Yeah, and, and also, you know, in, in a short, shorter term, the logic of opposition and to say one category of person is, is essentially different from another category of person is, is the logic that, that, that capitalism operates on. So it's saying, you know, there is a border here that can be overcome. This essential difference means that this person has something that you don't or some truth that you don't, that they can teach you and you can approach that truth. But really, you know, that, that logic is sort of overcome when you understand that there is no essential difference, really, you know, and, and you know, that sexuation exists, but like beyond that subjectivity is like absolutely universal. The thing that is deemed transcendently different doesn't actually exist. And that really, you know, we are all victims of the same material oppression. Okay. Given that this is the autistic hill I'm going to die on. <laughs> and that's fine. I accept my fate. Um, I, I very, very much want to say that essential difference really exists and it's really meaningful and it doesn't exclude something like the universal claim to negative capability or lack or a shared world or a shared form of exploitation or oppression, um, precisely talking about the working class would, um, you know, is a way of thinking about uh, men and women together insofar as they are exploited together. And obviously lots of early work by people like Colin Ty and the Soviet Union were about talking about sexual sex difference and the difference in experience of men and women, but ultimately under the heading of what it meant to be working class and that the the forms of solidarity between men and women uh, in the working class were more important ultimately than the differences between men and women in terms of reproduction and violence and, and so on. So I think both can and are true uh, when we are talking about uh, universality. The same would go for Christianity. Christianity is both uh, committed to sexual difference and to universality. You know, there's no there's no sense in which men and women can't be Christians in a universalist or anyone could you know anyone could be a Christian. That's the entire point of, of Paul and the New Testament. You know, literally anyone. <laughs> um, 
so I I think, but 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 Christianity. I mean, if you read the Bible, it's very very clear that there's man and woman. You know, that's that's also true. So I think it's about how do we reconcile these these two things? And I would say that what capitalism actually does is turn category, essential categories like male and female into floating signifiers. And in fact, they become precisely things that are commodities. So when if people think I can change sex, I can be something else, it's precisely because it takes on this form of a kind of free floating idea and a set of images and a set of products and a set of um, aesthetic uh, criteria and no longer refers precisely to something like embodiment or some sort of uh, basic physiological difference between men and women. It's it to be a woman is is something like to appear in a certain way. Or uh, if you read Andrea Long Chu, who's just won the Pulitzer, um, uh, <laughs> shockingly, Chu has written that uh, to be female is to be effed, and that's what it means to be uh, female. Um, and uh, really talks about this uh, uh, category as if it was a porn category, and that this is and, and it's a, p- a form of positionality. So to be female is simply to be the passive and unwilling, really, uh, receiver of sexual um, attention. And, and obviously, this is extraordinarily misogynistic. And Chu is getting this from precisely the porn categories of forced feminization and the idea that men can be, uh, you know, the fantasy would be that you're a man, but you're forced to be a woman and therefore you're forced to have sex with men and that you are nothing but a kind of worthless whole and this kind of thing. And it's truly, truly disturbing, right? But this is the world we live in. And, and these categories have become detached completely. And so the worst thing to be in the current regime is an essentialist. You know, this is the one accusation you can level at somebody and, and immediately people will throw up their hands in horror. And I have to say, I partly blame psychoanalysis for this, or at least um, but aren't the, the greatest, shift away. Yeah. Aren't the greatest essentialists, though, the, the greatest sex, you know, uh, uh, the, the sex obsessives, right? The, not, not as in the act of sex, but the, the category of sex. Aren't, do you know, like the, the great... I would say that the psychoanalytic position, just my interpretation, is um, much more ambivalent than that. And that, as, we, as I said, like because of the, what, what neoliberalism has done to society, there is this rebound obsession. So even though, so, you know, it's like when people shout the word fascist, well, actually, if you philosophically break down the structural um, impetus of the logic of the movement in middle Europe in the 1930s, etc. It operates in the same, in a similar way to those who are shouting the word fascist, as in it operates around a utopian logic. So what I'm saying is maybe that I don't think that you are, but maybe as essentialist as you think you are, <laughs> but the, the people who shout essentialist are the essentialists. Well, a lot of them are essentialists because a lot of them essentialize races and ethnicities all the time. A lot of them do that regularly and flippantly all, all over the place all the time. And I think Nina would very much disagree with, say, race essentialism 
or ethnic essentialism. I think when we're talking about essentialism, there's a question of, well, uh, where are we applying it? And uh, in what respect we're applying it? I am generally open to the idea that there may be some essential differences between people who biologically have wombs and can bear children and people who can't do those things. Uh, I am open to the idea that there's some level of, of essential difference there, but I don't think it goes very far. And I think uh, there's a danger in once you say, okay, there is an essential difference in projecting that difference into a lot of additional areas. And what we've kind of gotten into is a zero-sum thing where you have, on the one hand, people saying there's absolutely no essential difference. You can't draw any line at all. And anybody who's drawing any line is implicitly uh, <laughs> having an entirely sexist ontology that is uh, you know, repugnant and misogynist and so on. Uh, or uh, on the other side going, uh, we need to defend drawing the line and therefore not only will we draw it, but we'll draw it everywhere and in every aspect of life and we'll code everything as masculine or feminine and talk about masculine and feminine in relation to absolutely everything. Uh, and I think that th there's an extremism and a polarizing effect that comes out of that, that I think both sides in somber moments would like to resist. There are differences between people who bear children and people who don't, but those differences are not so great that they affect every area of life. Well, they're not, they're not, you know, transcendent, but they are. You know, I was just thinking before about something that you know, because the, the latest issue about the, the you know, biological males and sport was the, the marathon thing that we were discussing earlier. And then there's also at the same time, so, so I, I read, I sent you guys a screenshot that I saw on um, the white people Twitter subreddit, which, which commented on how um, men having an advantage in sport was a fascist trope. And the tragedy is that it's trickling down to normal people, normal people believe this. And as soon as you mention it, you're banned for life kind of thing. But then on the other hand, you have this big kind of, you know, cultural consciousness that like if you're a woman and you're, you're out alone at night, it's so dangerous. And all women have had that experience of walking home and texting, you know, their friends checking, oh, are you OK? And you could be raped and killed because of men and the dangerous men and the police in the UK. I don't quite know. I mean, this is your point, Nina, about the contradictions, you know, and contradictions that are repressed are a sign of ideology. But I, I don't quite know how people can have those two things in their mind at the same time and um, carry on unquestioningly. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think part of unpicking ideology and discussing these things as we try to do together collectively is to recognise where there are these antagonisms and blatant hypocrisies and things that literally don't make any sense. Um and I, I think, you know, I agree with Benjamin that there's basically that there is a middle ground. And I, in a way, I think I, I do uh, uh, adopt it, which is is something like sex is real. <laughs> you know, there are two sexes. Sex is immutable. Uh, sex matters in some contexts. Uh, and this has to be reflected in law as it as it sort of was or became historically. Um, you know, previously, women were excluded by law from certain things like voting and that was very much done on the basis of a of a, an essential attribution. You know, you are this kind of human being and you are not this kind of human being, right? So it's complicated when you have a history that's partly negatively constituted by 
uh, an essentialism which is uh, assigned to you. And this is very much one of the questions for the existentialists, you know, when Sartre talks in, in the essay Anti-Semite Jew, he talks about precisely these forms of group identification that are negative and what it means to then embrace forms of attribution which come from outside. And, and human beings are very good at creating in-groups and out-groups and othering and precisely designating negative groups of others as well as positive groups. And, and as Benjamin says, we, we are surrounded by forms of what we could in a very blunt and shorthand way referred to as things like woke racism where you bring back racism but it's good <laughs> um for example where you, you start talking about kind of oppression as a form of hierarchy and so on and you start attributing essential things to particular groups regardless of individual variation or any any uh reality um so my position is I would say perhaps more existentialist in the sense that I think that sex is a fact. I think it's one of those things that we can't choose. Um, and, but it doesn't tell you anything about how we live out that fact, right? So the fact that women have the capacity to uh, carry children and give birth doesn't mean that they should or that they will, for example. It's simply a, a way of saying that there is a kind of sort of baseline uh, in terms of how we use concepts and how we understand ourselves but how that plays out will, of course, be, you know, up to the individual, up to the context. You know, there are all of these other kind of criteria. But I think if we remove the facticity, if we if we say, no, everything is a choice, and obviously there are social hypocritical hard limits, we don't agree with transracialism, even though race is actually a spectrum far more than sex is. Sex is not a spectrum. Um, but nevertheless, uh, we, we don't accept transracialism. CF, the Rachel Dollis Al, and many other cases. Very interesting, by the way, just how many cases there are of white women in academia pretending to be Native American or whatever. Like, you know, there seems to be a kind of new case of this every month or so. Um, and you have to ask within the status games of academia how these uh, forms of uh, decisions can not only be understood psychoanalytically, but also as a form of um, game playing and. Uh, you know, using the identity politics in order to gain victim points or authenticity or whatever, whatever these women are getting. And it seems to be women who primarily do this, although I think there are a few cases of men pretending to be have a different ethnic background than the one they actually do. So um, I, I agree that it's very, very complicated. I think we should always keep pointing to these hypocrisies. I don't want to lose touch with certain fundamental essential truths about humanity. And I do probably far more than both of you think that being a woman or a man does actually um, affect how you see the world far more than we are perhaps uh, taught to, to believe, right? It doesn't mean, therefore, that we can't be equal in law or, you know, it really depends on what level and where we're talking about, you know, so it's not either or, it's not everything's a floating signifier or we're completely essentially this and therefore we must behave in this way because that's who we are, right? Like, of course, it's going to be somewhere in the middle, but I think we can't dispense with certain realities and certain collective truths which we have held and our ancestors held and we have understood in different ways in different times, but fundamentally we are committed to uh, without serious discussion at the very least. And this is what I've always said, like if we are going to change the meaning of these concepts, 
male and female, man and woman, um, we have to discuss it together. It is not just up to a small groups of people to say, well, we want to change these concepts and anyone else who doesn't go along with it is going to lose their job and lose all their friends. You know, this is, that's bullying. <laughs> you know, that is not a fair conversation given that sexuation and being a man or woman affects all of us. It is not a private decision. And you certainly can't have a small group of people telling everyone else what to think and punishing them if they don't agree. That is a form of uh, authoritarianism and tyranny, uh, which uh, none of us should uh, be behind. Well, we're coming up on an hour. We have talked about this before, and I'm sure we'll talk about it again, and we'll keep exploring where is there a line, and, and how far does that line go, and how much does it encircle? Uh, in the meantime, we're going to go do the B-side, so do please join us for that if you'd like. And in any event, thank you so much for listening, and have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.